Welcome to North Star Big Book. My name is Carly Israel, and I am your host. My sobriety date is January 27, 1999, and I created this podcast simply to share the message of the big book. It completely changed my life. It always changes my life, and I hope it can help change yours. Carly Recovered Alcoholic, welcome to North Star Big Book Podcast. I have my new friend, Timothy. Will you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Timothy Gager, and I always use my last name. And thank you so much. I'm such a big fan of North Star. Like, this is like, uh, you know, North Star Big Book Podcast has helped me take other people through the book because, I mean, I'm totally attention deficit. So what my sponsor might have told me couple of years ago I don't remember so you know Carly's cast is always like this refresher course for me and that's like awesome I'm so grateful to you and I love I actually am finding so many positives about the pandemic because I don't think we would have connected if we didn't have this and then you invited me and I just I love finding this new community so tell us why we are listening to you take us through 138 and 139 why did you choose these pages the words on 138 and 139 really speak to me and they don't speak to me necessarily. This is the chapter to employers and they don't necessarily speak to me as like an employee or an employer, but they speak to me more of uh, being an alcoholic and being labeled an alcoholic and people that really don't know what to do with alcoholics. Um, and you know, people have the best intentions and their best intentions may or may not help, you know, real help. Will you tell us before we get started um, where you are from and your sobriety date? My sobriety date, I'm from Boston or Dedham, Massachusetts. We love our Boston. Outside of Boston. And my sobriety date is November 6, 2010. You don't have an accent. Now I grew up on Long Island and I grew up with a Long Island accent and I went to college in Delaware and they beat the Long Island out of me and then I never really adapted to the Boston, you know? The Boston. Well, I, I, I love all my Bostonians because I was sober there for a little bit and it's 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 in my heart. So we are going to get into 138. Are we starting at the way top at here? It's sort of the first paragraph, yeah, oh, about boy. the typical example, which is so typical. It's all you. Okay, it's all me, huh? So on 138, they talk about... Um, there is a large banking institution and this big wig comes and they talk to the employee and says, look, there's someone in the company that's kind of has a drinking problem. He's kind of messed up. Can you help him? And uh, he's got really, really good intentions. So, uh, you know, uh, they, the big wig gets a little bit of information and knowledge for two hours about the malady of alcoholism. And I'm sure there's a whole lot of things about uh, finding your higher power. And there probably was things of, you know, it's up to him, it's not up to us, but that's two hours. So uh, I know if my boss wanted to talk to me, another employee, I don't know if I would talk to them for two hours. I'd be like, oh, just have the person come see me. Right, Um, but you have to remember, this was written in the 1930s. And so that means that the stories in the 1930s and no one really knew about Alcoholics Anonymous at all because our textbook wasn't out. It was unknown. And we, we used to be committed for alcoholic insanity. So there probably had to be a lot of explaining going on. 
and, and there's also a lot of um, attraction rather than promotion in this chapter. Yes. I mean, that's, I always give out my last name. Like I do, because if people want to get sober, they need to be able to find me. It's not going to be like, hey, you know, I'm Mr. AA, Mr. Alcoholic. It's like, they want to find me and people have found me. My friends have found me. You know, I put it out there. I'm not all that anonymous. Right. My, my friends that need help know where to find me. And I've helped some people that way. So are we, are we, should we be reading this? Yeah, early? why don't you start with that first paragraph, start reading it and I'll interrupt you and we'll tell stories. So that sounds great. Okay, so here for instance is a typical example. An officer of one of the largest banking institutions in America knows I no longer drink. Ding, you know, he's out there. He's not all that anonymous. Right, and how do they know that? Probably because they've been at functions and they see, oh, that's the only one that's not making an ass of themselves. Yeah, or the, or the one that's like, or the one that's like, no, I don't drink. Get that away from me. I've been sober right, for X amount so. of time. <laughs> so one day he told me about an executive of the same bank who from his description was undoubtedly alcoholic. And you know, this employee is in big trouble. He's, he's skating on the high wire, like one more like bad right. behavior or screw up. You screw up in a bank, you cost the bank lots of money. And, uh, you know, one more screw up and he's gone. And probably he's like, you don't drink, please help him. Right. But this is an executive. So they are putting a lot of money and time into this person, which is probably why they are still willing to keep them on. Yep. This seemed to me like an opportunity to be helpful. So I spent two hours talking about alcoholism, the malady, and described the symptoms and the results as well as I could. Right, will you stop right there for a second? Yes. So I have that underlined because I'm not going to be able to see an opportunity to be helpful today if I'm not doing 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis, because otherwise all I'm thinking about is my crap. And I don't hear other people talking, even though I look like I hear them. And because this person was not blocked off from self and they were trying to be connected to their higher power, they were aware enough to know, oh, this is an opportunity to be helpful. Exactly. And sometimes you can just be helpful. Just like I've, I mean, some people that I know question because of me, they question whether they have a problem or not. And I don't put it upon them, but like just to be helpful, just to be like to exist in a sober world and have fun as a sober person and just to, uh, you know, have a life like hell. When I got sober, I thought it was, you know, I was getting punished. Like this is my punishment. But for the rest but, of my life, right? But today yeah, I, we got to be right, attracted attraction, not promotion. Exactly. So uh where am I? His comment was very interesting, but I'm sure this man is done drinking. So it sounds kind of cut and dry, but like you know, that two-hour conversation, there was a lot of back and forth, you know, and uh like he's done, he's done. And meanwhile, you know, Bill's talking about you know, the disease and the progression and, uh, you know, uh, just be, and, you know, willpower, but, you know, later in the chapter, later in those pages, they'll talk about that. Um, so he just returned from a three month leave of absent, has taken a cure, looks fine. And to clinch the matter, the board of directors have told him that this was his last chance. So in other words, he was sent away like to rehab, <laughs> commonly a hospital. A right. sanitarium. He dried out for three months. He looks great. He hasn't had a drink physically. He looks great. He hasn't had a physical drink in three months. 
And boy, he's ready. And plus, he's got that thread over his head. Right, from the board of directors. And you know, this reminds me of, there was a guy that my family knew. We were family friends. And his son was in the program with us. And the father, who was my grandparents' age, was um, almost died of alcoholism, had cirrhosis of the liver. His belly was like nine months pregnant, yellow. And the doctor told him, just like it says in the book, if you drink ever again, you'll, you'll literally die of alcoholism, you know? And he was sober for five years, didn't do the work, but just was in the rooms of AA from the fear and was happy to be there and felt better. And then what happens to us with the spiritual malady is if we take away alcohol from the alcoholic and you don't replace it with the spiritual condition and the change, sure enough, right? And I remember my grandmother at the time who was friends with him saying, he's never going to drink again. And my mom, my dad, and I are all sober. And we're like, well, that there's no such thing. Like, there is no such promise that you're never going to drink again, especially if the board of directors tell you you can't. And he died of an alcohol, he died of alcoholism. You know, he did. He picked up a drink and he died. And that always, I always remember that because my grandmother, she could not imagine that he would ever drink again. But he did. Well, you hear it. And, you know, it's one reason I go to meetings is to hear the stories and the stories are sometimes, I mean, there's no guarantees and nothing like people do, will say in meetings, they'll say like, you know, I've got 10 years of sobriety, which I, which I almost do, but there's no guarantees. And you hear in the rooms, people with X amount of sobriety, one year, two years, 10 years, one week, and they decide to go out again and they, you know, they end up in you know, in very bad shape or they end up dead. Right. My favorite um, story of that I heard in a lead was a guy that had 42 years of sobriety and he picked up and he was lucky enough to come back and introduce himself again. And they said like, what happened? 42 years. Like that's, that's like standing in the stadium pre COVID, like everyone's clapping for you 42 years. And he said he had too many years in AA and not enough days. He was too focused on how much time he had and wasn't doing the time in the moment. And you cannot, that's the resting on your laurels. I can't yeah. do that today. You got to be active in your program. And yes, you know, I heard very early on, if you're coasting, you're going downhill. Right. And it's funny, all those uh, the things that you hear that sound so profound when you're new or just, you know, they're just things that are just tried and true. And but they are, years. right? They're yeah. true. Like you're either growing or going. I, they, I used to get so mad at them, Tim, because like, I'd be like, oh, here's your refrigerator cliche magnets. Let me just take one out and put it on my bumper sticker. But they're true. You're either growing or you're going. As alcoholics, we are like water and you're either stagnant or you're flowing. You cannot do nothing yeah. right yeah me and my friends in early sobriety we were like we did this little game we call it let's create our own banners and we come up with our sayings like i've got one hang in there baby we can put like a yellow cat on it <laughs> seen that one before so the paragraph we're about to read next i have written above it alcoholics have a usual pattern so let's read that the only answer I could make was that if the man followed the usual pattern, he would go on a bigger bus than ever. I felt this was inevitable and wondered if the bank was doing the man an injustice. Why not bring him into contact with some of our alcoholic crowd? He might have a chance. I okay, so stop right there. Yes. So you just read that, and I guarantee you, whether you're in Boston or I'm in Cleveland or someone's in Germany, 
and they're an alcoholic in recovery, they will know this story that there's a usual pattern. If you're telling me about somebody and they're not doing anything, we don't provide them with a solution. They're going to pick up a drink. Like we're like, and the, people look at us like we're like fortune tellers. And we're like, it's just a really simple story. This is what happens to us. And in the beginning when people want to stop and they, you know, like this gentleman, he went to the sanitarium for three months. Like he has no idea, you know, the next bottom, you think you had a bottom, your next one's going to be worse. It's right. never slightly better. It's, right. it's always, and it's also psychological too. Like people always will reach a certain point that they were before. And then one step on, whether it's, you know, good, you, you want that extra step, you know, like, uh, you're gambling or if it's bad, like it's kind of like, well, I've been this bad before. And then like, it's never going to get better. So it always has to get worse than this bad before. But you know, what's also so sick about our mental obsession is I had a really good friend who had a year more than me when I first got sober and he ended up going out because he stopped doing the work. And I remember talking to him like five or six years in and he'd been out for a couple of years. And I said, what's going on? He's like, I'm miserable. And I said, so you know what to do, like come back. And he said, nothing bad enough has happened in order for me to say I can come back now. Like his mental obsession told him why, but he needed to have like a really bad event that happened in order for him to say, okay, I can come back now. And what I want the listener to understand is we don't need that from you. You are welcome back at any point that you say that you want to come back. And I also want everyone to understand that it's no one's business if you go out except for your own and you get to share that and no one else gets to talk about it. And if they do, you can tell them to read the book because we don't do that to each other. We just welcome everybody back if they're, if they're lucky enough to come back. Yeah. And there's the, you know, we don't give them or offer them shame, but- Never so much inner shame that that's really hard for the person coming back to deal with. Right. I remember Bill W. um, I read at one point in one of the readings that people were like, you need to give them more rules and more like consequences. And Bill said, they don't need any, they've got alcoholism and alcoholism will beat them harder than anyone here can, which is right. Like you just said, we don't need to shame anyone, which is not our business anyways. But the shame comes from that life. And we're just here to say, we love you. Like we are you, like we're the same people as you and there's zero judgment. Yeah, I mean, alcoholism is like, you're in this car with bad brakes and you're on the top of the largest hill in San Francisco. And you're going down the hill and you're hitting the brakes and it's not really slowing the car down, but like, it's like turning to the person next to be like, hey, don't worry, I have brakes. They still exist in the car. Right, that's terrifying. All right, tell me how he shared his story. Go for that. I pointed out. Okay. I pointed out that I had nothing, that I had had nothing to drink, whatever, for three years. And this, in the face of difficulties, would have made nine out of 10 drink their heads off. Why not at least afford him an opportunity to hear my story? And that's, I mean, the whole thing about, um, AA and this program, it's all about stories. You know, it's all about hearing somebody's story. They like uh, very first alcoholics and the very first people in AA who travel to hospitals be like, I'm going to tell my story. And the story is kind of what gets them in. Like, uh, 
it's uh, it's needed. Like when I was new, I needed to hear stories. I needed to hear that people drank like I did because I didn't necessarily believe that that was possible. You know, I needed to hear that story. So I love how it's been passed through the years. Yeah, and you the know. storytelling is so important. And something else I want to share is I've never sat in a meeting and thought, oh my God, we have the exact same story. And I've heard people say that and like they heard their story. And I was like, when am I going to hear my story? And I'm 21 years sober and that's never happened. But what I've heard is I've heard when people, and this is what I want from people when they share their story, is they don't talk so much about the events. They talk about the feelings and the thinking. Tell me what it felt like when you looked in the mirror. Tell me what it felt like when you were alone at night and you and you were, it was quiet. I can relate to that. Because our stories might not match up ever, right? But we all have that same common problem, which is we cannot function like this anymore and we hate ourselves, right? And that we can connect to. Yeah, like uh, it's everyone's, everyone's bottom is a self-hate event. Mm, I love that. Say it again. Everyone's bottom. Everyone's bottom is a self-hate event. Like, like you can have, like you can be, drunk and drive your car under a brick wall but if you're not feeling bad about it you're not hating yourself about it you know what that's not going to get you sober exactly right for me you would have thought my bottom was overdosing at oblenis hospital and almost dying but it wasn't it was the walk home the quiet walk home where i couldn't think of one more place to go my bottom wasn't what someone else thought it should be it was what happened between me and my higher power where i saw no other way All right, so back to the book. Uh, oh no, said my friend. This chap is either through with liquor or he's minus a job. If he has your willpower and guts, he will make the grade. And uh, yeah, this chap uh, right there is the example of like a lack of understanding. Yes. Like willpower and guts. Like it's great if you have it. It can be one of the tools that you use, but like, you know, this is an illness, right? right. And, and the uh, person that's saying that doesn't understand that our disease, they think that you just need to be strong in your mind and in your courage. And that's not at all what we need. No, like, uh, and how many times have we heard our loved ones saying, why can't they just- What are they thinking? Not... What are they doing? Why are they doing this again, right? And then the, the sad realization when they realize that their loved one can't stop no matter what. And then they have to do the, you know, the hide the bottle games or like, let's leave it. Let's go home at 8 p.m. Or like, we don't need like none of it works. So painful. Right. I wanted to throw up my hands in discouragement for I saw that I had failed to help my banker friend understand. He simply could not believe that his, his brother executive suffered from a serious illness. There was nothing to do but wait. I underline that and start it and highlight it. And I wrote on the side, tool for sponsees who are unwilling. So if you're sponsoring and they don't seem to get it, that they're dying from a serious illness, what the book tells me is that there's nothing to do but wait. Because like we were talking about before, alcoholism will either bring them to the rooms or kill them. But there's nothing I can personally do to get them to understand that they need to do this. What will get them is desperation. All I can do is explain the facts, but I can never make somebody, and people that don't understand it get very uncomfortable when I'm like, no, 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 it's okay, you don't have to do this. 
They're like, no, you're going to convince them to drink. I'm like, I cannot convince them to drink. And I can also not convince them to stay here because step one says that no human power, right? Including me. Uh, yeah, I believe that 100%. It took me so long for me to reach understanding about step one. You know, it took me 30 years that I just was in such denial. Like, I don't need this. This isn't that bad. Um, and I thought I was, you know, I could not drink for three days or a week. And, and I'd be like, oh, see, I can stop anytime I want. And then I'd start to feel a little bit better and be like, there's always this up and down roller coaster. But how powerful is it if you are guided by someone who understands this work and can say to you, this is on you. Like, this is your choice. If you want to get help, we're here to help you. And if you don't, that's also your choice. Because then it ultimately is you getting to say, I can't live like this anymore. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Because only when you get there can someone actually do something, which is why we immediately take them into the steps. Because otherwise, they're going to lose that desperation. That's a gift. And it doesn't last. It's like moments. So presently, the man did slip and was fired. What a surprise. Shocking. Was predicted, you know? Following his discharge, we contacted him. Without much ado, he accepted the principles and procedures that had helped us. He's undoubtedly on the road to recovery. To me, this incident illustrates lack of understanding as to what really ails the alcoholic and lack of knowledge as to what part employers might profitably take in salvaging their sick employees. Before you go on, I wanted to say a few things. So I noticed that they, that we, which is the first 100 men and women, don't contact him until he's already lost his job. And the reason why, why do we wait until they lost their job? Again, it's the gift, it's the gift of des desperation. Right. You, know, you wait. Because, you know, if he's fighting whether he wants to, he's fighting whether he's an alcoholic or not. He's fighting, do I need help or not? He's, he's fighting like, right. I don't want to do this. And uh, it's actually a gift that they get fired. Like people are always so worried that they're going to give them, that someone's going to, that we are capable of pushing someone over the edge and we're not, no one is that powerful, but giving someone structure and consequences could be exactly what they need. Right. So that when it says he accepted the principles, I wrote about that steps. And when it says what really ails the alcoholic, I wrote mental obsession and physical allergy because he didn't know and they didn't know it was wrong. And it, only when that person lost their job would they be even willing to hear what we have to say because then they're desperate and desperate equals willing. And he was told he was going to lose his job, but he drank anyway. Yeah, because he's powerless. And we're also very cunning liars too. Like we've yeah. talked our way out of so many situations. Like, oh, come on, one more chance. Or uh, it's, and they probably, uh, he probably thought I can talk my way out of this one again. And actually, that employer did for him a solid because he might have not stopped if he kept giving him another chance. For me, my mom saying to me after I overdosed, "I can't do this anymore. I can't help you anymore." I knew that if she was not going to help me anymore, I was screwed. All right. So if you desire to help, it might be well to disregard your own drinking or lack of it. Whether you are a hard drinker, a moderate drinker, or a teetotaler, you may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudices. And uh, yeah, I just, uh, well, I'll, I'll continue because I, I have I've notes. But uh, 
I'm not ready for the next note yet. <laughs> um, those who drink moderately may be more annoyed with an alcoholic than a total abstainer would be. So again, it's kind of like, why can't he stop? Yeah. I can stop. The lack of understanding. Yeah, like I remember my, my daughter's, like she had her, the beginning of the hockey season, there was always like, you know, the parents and there was this big party and all the, all the kids on the team would be in the basement and the parents would like, um, would be upstairs. And it's the first time meeting these parents and I would get drunk every time. And I never understood how come none of the rest of the parents are drinking the way I am? I mean, don't they want to have fun? Like I, I didn't get other people. I didn't worry about them not understanding me and my alcoholism. I didn't get everybody else. It's so interesting that you say that. So my youngest son, who's 11, knows I'm sober. And we were talking yesterday about smoking. And I said to him, I so wish I could smoke again if it only didn't cause cancer, make me smell, cost a lot of money, affect my athleticism, and pollute the air, right? And he asked me today, do you wish you could drink again if it didn't cause problems? And I thought about it and I thought, no. And he said, why? And I was like, I can't explain it to you, but I can't even go in my mind to a place where I could do it in a way that wouldn't cause problems because the way that I wanted to drink always caused problems. I don't want to drink two glasses of wine with, with the hockey parents. I want to be trashed. So even if it didn't cause problems, I still don't even, even in my imagination, want to be an alcoholic. I don't want to be a regular person in my imagination when it comes to alcohol. Yeah, I mean, I get that completely. And there's also like the, the hoarding too. I remember doing a book reading in Rhode Island and they had the, they had a 12 pack of beer and cheese and crackers for after the reading. And so I made sure I sat in the first row and reached across the table. And pretty much I, while the other readers were reading before it was my turn, I'd polished off a six pack. It was 12 beers for the entire room. But, you know, I wanted to make sure I got mine, even if it meant breaking the social etiquette of you're not allowed to have this until afterwards. I would have been so anxious if I would have looked around the room to see more than two people in that 12 pack. <laughs> Um, uh, drinking occasionally and understanding your own reactions, it is possible for you to become quite sure of many things which, so far as the alcoholic is concerned, are not always so. As a moderate drinker, you can take your liquor or leave it alone. Whenever you want to, you control your drinking. So I stopped right there and I wrote on the side, I underlined that and I wrote, could you, question mark, to remind myself when I'm taking someone through, there's always um signs and questions in this book that are constantly giving us you know asking us do you think this is you are you a moderate drinker so timothy could you take it or leave it alone i could never leave it alone i was always my shut off was always wasted <laughs> i could control my drinking i just couldn't keep it controlled so i could do it on purpose if i had to but i couldn't stay whatever that speed was whatever that two drink minimum, you know, maximum was, I couldn't stay there. And I wrote on the side, the non-alcoholic. A non-alcoholic is able to take it or leave it alone. They do not have a physical allergy when they put alcohol in their body. And when they don't have it in their body, they don't have a mental obsession. 
Yeah, and it's funny, the modern, according to the book, the moderate drinker does not understand why we can't stop. And on the flip side, I can't understand why someone would ever want one glass of wine. Oh my Lord. I mean, I feel the same way about my husband who is a complete moderate drinker, thank God. And he doesn't live with me. So when he comes here to visit, he has a six pack that he bought like January. And I got to tell you, it doesn't bother me as an alcoholic that I like see alcohol in my refrigerator. It bothers me as an alcoholic that like, why have you not finished this? This is ridiculous and embarrassing. Like, how could you not finish a six pack? It's been like eight months. Like, isn't that alcoholic abuse? I know. It's like, uh, or the person that's so willing to like at dinner to like they have half a drink and they're ready to go home. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, let's wait. You got to finish that. Just, just drink it. I tell people too, like if they're worried about whether they are or they aren't, it's not me to judge them, but I always say, hey, it's not the amount, it's how you feel about the alcohol. Like, is it your best friend? Is it your spouse? Is it something you can't live without? Like you can have like one drink a night or well, maybe a little more than one night, but if that is, you're obsessed with that the entire time and that one drink is causing consequences, what I always think about, and I want to make it really clear, I no longer have a mental obsession, but there was this woman in AA, her name was Birdie. And when I was four years sober, she was like 36 years sober. And she was in Chicago and she said, she was so elegant. And she said that there's never a drink that is poured in her vicinity that she does not see out of the corner of her eye. And it wasn't because she wanted the drink. It's because once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. We to not be aware of it is ignorant because we are aware of it. We, it makes sense that we watch regular people and we go, why are you, you ordered that like an hour and a half ago? Like, what is wrong? Like that's what's happening in our brains, right? And it's because we have a disease and our disease looks at regular people and doesn't understand why they're not finishing it. And that doesn't mean I want to finish it. It just, I only know alcohol in that way. And the flip side is I love when people across the table from you find out that you don't drink and they've ordered one and suddenly they're trying to push it like behind like the napkin They're holder. so worried like you're going to grab it. Is this going to push you over the edge? Yeah, I'm like, you don't have to hide that in the napkins. <laughs> okay. You don't have to make a napkin tent with your vodka tonic. Right? <laughs> so whenever we want to, you control your drinking of an evening, you can go on a mild bender, get up in the morning, shake your head and go to business. And you know, it's very often we hear that and it's kind of like a mild bender. And it's like, you know, this low bottom, high bottom drinker. Like I thought I was functioning if I could get up and go to my job, which I did. You know, I'd go to, sometimes I'd be go to bed at 4 a.m. and I'd be like, oh, it's gonna be a rough one tomorrow. And I'd get up and I'd go to my job and I never missed work. But you know what, that's, that's sort of dangerous <laughs> to, to read that in the book for me because, you know, like there was, you know, my bottom had nothing to do with my ability to get up in the morning, shake my head and go about my business because I could do that. It had to do right. with all the other stuff. Thank goodness that's not what it determines and defines what an alcoholic is. It's just on page 44. You know, when you don't put alcohol in your body, are you able to keep it out of your body? No, the mental obsession. Or when you put alcohol in your body, can you always control the amount you take? No, the physical allergy. So they don't care about 
if we're able to go to work or not. I got the highest grades in my whole college career. This, the quarter I tried killing myself and, and ended, you know, my sobriety. So like, it doesn't matter what the outside stuff is. That's why I don't focus a ton in step one about those outside consequences, because like we talked about before, we are capable of making a lot of things look okay. It's what's happening on the inside. And then you get uh, you get in trouble also if you're comparing. Yeah. Your story's not that bad. And right. Yet. Exactly. Um, to you, alcohol is no real problem. You cannot see why it should be to anyone else, save the spineless and the stupid. <laughs> Ooh, that's what a little bit of window into what other people must think of alcoholics. Exactly. Well, why can't they stop? They've gotten more than one DWI, they've done this, they've done that. Like, why can't they? It must just be stupidity. And, and what happens is there's a lot of anger, understandably so, because they talked about it earlier on in the book that we're like a tornado and that we you know, wreck people's lives and we emotionally destroy families. It's a family disease. Family meaning whoever's near that person. And I think the best thing, the best service we can offer anyone as alcoholics that are sober and recovered is we can tell them you need to go to Families Anonymous or Al-Anon because there's people there that understand what you're going through and that can guide you through it because it's a disease and they need to know how to deal with it. And, and moderate drinkers can use willpower. And right, we can't. We, we can't. It doesn't make us spineless or stupid. But thank God the uh, the acceptance of alcoholism as a disease is growing. But who knows in this society, like you see, and for me, like, I caught myself once and it had to do with a loved one. And I was so tolerant and accepting of my peers in the rooms. But if my loved one was struggling, I was judgmental. I was short with them. I was not helpful. I was not serene. It was like, um, you know, and that's what people think of us. So I always have to keep myself in check and be like, you know what, I'm not all that, you know. And I it's a good reminder of why we should never work with people that we're emotionally connected to. Because when you're emotionally affected, you cannot give them the guidance that they need, which is why when we have a loved one, we need to turn them over to someone that can say to them, look, if you're not done, you're not done, buddy. Goodbye. We are like, no, because we know they're, they're going to die. Yeah. And uh, it's just uh, we still have a long way to go with blaming. And it's, it's, you know, the thought process of like blaming the victim. And like, I remember a, uh, one one night, the church that hosts a bunch of meetings, their large screen, like 60 inch TV mounted on the wall was stolen. And the church went, to, of course, first people they went to were the AA groups. You know, you guys, the, it's missing. You guys have the keys, blah, blah, blah. And it turned out it was a church employee. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, we've done our deeds that, you know, suspicion is, you know, is warranted. Yeah, it is. You know, um, when dealing with an alcoholic, there may be a natural annoyance that a man could be so weak, stupid, and irresponsible. Even when you understand the malady better, you may feel this feeling rising. A look at the alcoholic in your organization is many times illuminating. He is not usually brilliant, fast-thinking, imaginative, and likable. When, when sober does... He not work hard and have a knack of getting things done. If he had these qualities and did not drink, would he be worth retaining? 
Should he have the same consideration as other ailing employees? Is he worth salvaging? And again, you know, we don't have to just necessarily think about this as like employer employee. Like these, like I've been fired from relationships, you know, mm -hmm. because of my drinking. And that's, and that is not, you know, it's the same stuff. Like he's a good guy. You hear that. She's a good, she's a great person when they are not drinking. And it's a whole different ball game. So, you know, the, you get these gifts just by not drinking. You get to be a good person without even trying sometimes. You get to be yourself. Yes. And we don't have to cause so much harm because we have control over the way we're behaving today. It's not reaction. It's not out of control. We know what we're doing. We don't have to be embarrassed, which is why the executive came to them in the first place. Yeah. I mean, God, I mean, I used to just hope beyond hope. Like I knew if I'd be at a work function, I knew I would drink too much, but I, I wasn't like asking for help to not drink so much. I was asking for help. Like, please, uh, you know, don't embarrass myself. Please don't do, you know, something that might get you in trouble. Right. You know, it's the old Santa Claus praying again. Please are let we, me get. Are we going to keep going or do you want to stop here? Um, we can stop. I mean, I could keep going all night, but like, <laughs> this was so awesome. I'm so grateful for your time. I'm grateful for your time and, and what you do and the time that you put into, uh, you know, teaching about alcoholism and taking people through the book. And like, that's, you know, I just love that we get to show each other. So everyone knows that I love the big book, but I love that I get to show them that Timothy loves the big book and that, you know, I love finding people that get to make this come alive because I'm never going to look at those pages again without thinking of you. And I love that about this because even though this was written in the 1930s in 2020, we can get excited about it today. Yeah, and I'm excited about it because I was so like, it's such a miracle that I don't drink. It is such, it really and, and is. I, know, I credit the book and I credit AA and like, and if other people have this miracle and they do it by like, you know, every time that they want to have a drink, they take a big masking tape and they rip the hair off their arm. If that works for them. That's great. You know, more power to them. That would be bold everywhere. <laughs> but this is the only thing that worked for me. The only yeah, thing I had no too. power, no ability you know, like no one was patting me on the back when I, you know, could go seven days without a drink. In fact, none of my friends missed me. When I decided to get sober, no. nobody missed me. No one said, will you please come back and drink with us? Even the, the hardcore drinker friends might be like, thank God. You know, no gold stars for our absence. Exactly. exactly. Thank you so much. For any listeners who would like to get deeper insight into my story, I just released my memoir, Seconds and Inches. It was a dream of mine for decades to write my memoir. And while I do not believe in mixing money in AA, I just wanted to share with the world that I did this accomplishment and it can be found wherever you normally purchase books, paperback, audio, or digital. I wish you an awesome day. Thank you.